Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed podcast today. And today we have a lady calling in from Pennsylvania. Her name is Catherine Ramsland, and she is a professor at the Sales University. And she specializes in, I would say, what, crime? Well, how would uh, extreme you Extreme offenders. I'd say extreme offenders is my specialty, yeah. Very interesting topic, criminal-minded type individuals. What is your outlook on that? What was your passion to get involved uh, and tell these stories? I take it from a psychological angle, uh, looking at their developmental trajectory. I got into this when uh, I was a kid and there was a serial killer in my town. And then later I started to write for a website called the Crime Library, which was part of the court TV system. And I kept writing about researching and writing about serial killers and then started talking to some. And then I started teaching a class called Dangerous Minds and it all kind of came together. So for the past probably 27 years, I've been involved in an in-depth analysis of the psyche of dangerous offenders like specifically about serial killers. I wrote, I spent five years writing the uh, guided autobiography of Dennis Rader, the BTK killer from Kansas. And I say guided because I wanted him to talk in a way that would benefit criminal justice, forensic psychology, and uh, law enforcement, not just talk about, you know, his own stuff, but in a way that would, that would work for us. And as a result, um, you know, then I began to study some others in that same way. But a lot of it is toward the end of teaching and researching and, you know, potentially benefiting, thinking of treatment and prevention and things like that. When I said wasted resource, a lot of times these subjects are not handled properly in the system. Do you think that is the case based on your experience? When you look at these individuals, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, so you're, you you mean you're, like Bundy saying you should study me because I'm a unique individual, that kind of thing, and we don't do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it seems like you're kind of diving into that a little more, and I don't know if the system does the same thing. So, or some of well, these, some of these suspects that we don't dig into, are they a wasted resource? They're, they are a wasted resource, but I will tell you, it is time-consuming. You need a particular type of individual who's willing to do it and not just play games and lie and, you know, preen and brag. Uh, you need a particular type of subject. You need somebody who's got time to be able to do it as well as expertise to be able to do it. So it's not easy to get all those factors together because I do work in uh, at a university. I'm supported and I'm also a writer, so I'm somewhat supported by the funds I make. And so I had the time and the motive, the motivation to work with Raider on a very in-depth basis, um, as well as a few others that I've worked with. So you need somebody who can devote that kind of time. And certainly most people can't. 
and may not even be inclined to. So, I mean, the answer is yes, they are a resource, but not all of them really want to participate in a way that's helpful. Some just want to brag. Some um, just want to talk about themselves and leave it at that. Uh, some want to be tricksters and play games. So it's not as simple as it might seem. Like, for example, Bundy wanted to be studied, but the reason he wanted to be studied is he wanted somebody to save his life, to keep him from being executed. So he said whatever he thought somebody wanted him to say. And that doesn't make a very good resource for us if it's just simply he's trying to figure it out and he'll supply whatever he thinks we want. That's not really getting at the truth. So, and with Raider even, I mean, I think I, I think he was mostly truthful, but certainly he was also manipulative and deceptive at times. Um, it just took a lot of uh, time spent with him to figure that out. I did write one book a, a while back, right before I started working with Raider, that was a collection of mental health experts from the past century who had taken a lot of extra time to speak to serial killers and mass murderers to try to figure out from the raw material of these of these encounters, you know, what what was their developmental trajectory? What can we use these stories for um, in a way that benefits society? But that's very few people who can do that. There really aren't a lot who can. And those who have have really, you know, put a lot of time and energy and even expense into it. The answer is yes. But on the other hand, how are you going to get all the right factors in one place? And give us a little background for people who may not know about, uh, you said Raider? Is that how you say the name? Yeah, uh, Dennis Rader was a serial killer who began in Wichita, Kansas in 1974 with uh, the murder of a family of four. And then he continued to kill women. He killed 10 people altogether until he had stopped in 1991 and he got away with it for 30 years until he emerged a little bit later and uh, started playing cat and mouse games with the media and with police and then made a mistake and that got him caught. So he's sort of the one of the most famous living incarcerated serial killers today. Uh, gotcha. Lots of lots of the ones that we know a lot about are, are dead, but he's mm -hmm. alive and and still accessible. I've been talking to him for about twelve years now. What was your initial read, and what do you look for to? read someone? Well, I mean, the first thing is he has to want to cooperate and he has to want to put the work into it. So had he not wanted to do that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have bothered. Um, mm -hmm. The victims' families benefit from the proceeds. So that was another aspect of this, uh, this kind of a work. He seemed sincere in wanting to explore. I mean, he was a family man. He, so he had two kids. He was, had been married for a long time. He was the president of his church council or whatever they call that. He had been a, a Boy Scout volunteer. He had a steady job. Um, these are things you don't expect in a serial killer, and yet they were all true of him, and he passed as normal. Mm -hmm. When he was arrested, people came to the courthouse and said, you have the wrong guy. It is not him. And so he teaches us a lot about this compartmentalization that some of these offenders are able to do where they seem perfectly fine. Uh, and then we find out 
they're doing these these horrific things. I mean, who would be thinking the president of a church body is is also a serial killer? Mm-hmm. You know, and that he killed one of his neighbors, and that he that he targeted and he killed ten, but he targeted about fifty five people. He mm-hmm. broke into homes. He stole things. He stalked people. Uh, he tried kidnapping people. And yet he was a family man and a responsible citizen. So, mm-hmm. and nothing in his background would make you think he would have done this because he had an intact set of families, grandparents, all American boy kind of thing, no abuse, no neglect, nothing like that. So a, a real mystery and an enigma enigma. And I found that fascinating because it goes against the formulas that we've developed. And Mm -hmm. I like to go against the formulas because I think sometimes we oversimplify uh, some of these people because we like to, you know, think of ourselves as if we, if we understand them and we know what to expect, we're safe. Mm -hmm. But then you have someone like Raider who shows you that not necessarily. Well, when I said ancestral lineage is that something that you're aware of have you ever looked into when you deal with these people no that's i mean i i just deal with them as case history i don't really um, look into look that because in, no. I, I had a thought with that you know like when you think about vibrations and we're all living different types of vibrations and supposedly you carry Let's say if you had ancestors prior to you and they had traumas or, or, you know, tragic events, you carry these. If you do not stop this in your your bloodline, in your lineage, if you do not stop this, you can continue to carry that on. And I thought about this one day and I'm like, you know what, if there's so much trauma and so much tragedy passed down through a lineage, it gets to a point where if it hasn't been recognized or fixed, it gets to a point where you run into that personality where, you know, that weight of that tragedy and trauma puts them in a mindset and place that is disconnected from reality, right? Because it hasn't ever been addressed in their lineage. Have you ever thought about something like that? It's almost like, it's almost like the trauma and the tragedy that was passed down to that person, you know, and this person starts going, I just, I just don't know how you identify it. What's that? You, you, I know the concept. I don't know how you would identify it in any given person. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I mean, just yeah. because you have an ancestor who committed suicide doesn't mean it impacts you. 
how, how yeah. would you necessarily find any cause and effect from that? Well, look at unconscious bias. Yeah, but that's cultural. But unconscious bias is if you eliminate unconscious bias and you are able to operate that way, things would be consistent. I think it's something from the foundation to that, the, those emotions that might be harbored within someone. I mean, I don't know. This is just because I talk to spiritual people. I talk to, you know, and I'm a, a, a clairsentient myself. I'm highly sensitive. I have energy. I have a lot of energy around my body. I have energy coming out my hands. If I dial in, I can read people and, and things like that. And, you know, I was, I was just thinking about that one day. How do these people get pushed to that point? You know, is it a multiple personality thing? Sounds like this guy lived. Did he have two different types of personalities? Nope. If he was a if he was a home person and, and he he had the same mindset. Well, that's what compartmentalizing is. He called it cubing. Where I mean, if you take a, a psychopathic type of individual who's not deeply rooted in integrity uh, or consistency of self, uh, and what they basically do is uh, whatever they need to do for what they want. So they're narcissistic. And if they need to act a certain way in a certain context, they will. But if, if that context changes, they can easily shift with the context because they, they don't have any commitment to truth. They have a commitment only to themselves. So that's a psychological concept. It really isn't necessarily about you know, any kind of psychic inheritance. It's what? definitely not multiple personality disorder. And there's no such thing as that anyway anymore because it's now known as dissociative identity disorder. But that has very distinct criteria for diagnosing, and Rader does not fit that. What was his internal drive to do what he did? Uh, sexual excitement was what motivated him. He grew up as a kid reading true detective magazines that he that his father kind of hid away and he'd find. And he loved um, the experience of being bound by ropes and whatnot as an autoerotic exercise. So between the true detective magazines that featured certain serial killers and his desire to be bound, he developed this desire as an adolescent to trap females to keep them in cages, to bind them. And mm -hmm. then he saw certain images that he wanted to duplicate because he wanted a sense of power over women. And uh, all of that kind of braided together into, as he was developing sexually, into a sexual desire that he then acted on. Did he mention anything that his mom and dad, there was ever any issues there? No. Where was in front of him or anything like that no, at all. He didn't mention they seemed fine. They except, you know, when his mother saw evidence that he had a seminal emission, she very religious, you know, scolded him and said his father was gonna talk to him. That's a pretty typical Midwestern religious family thing. And so he was shamed and, and he hated her for that. And that was one of the things that motivated him to want power over women because he didn't like his mother's power over him. There wasn't anything that he knew of or talked about that was an issue with his parents' relationship. Because, I mean, that's a makeup, right? You had to get that. I call it oil. You know, if you put oil in a car or gas in a car, you had to get that strand or whatever it is. But he got a lot of that through his own fantasies through what he was exposed to, to through mm -hmm. his autoerotic activities. Really? And, and he, you said how old was he when this started? It started when he was, well, it was started before he was a teenager. He was binding himself and finding it to be pleasurable. You know, he grew up on farms, so there was always rope and twine 
uh, around. And then as he was, I think it was 14, he read about a serial killer named Harvey Glattman in a true crime magazine. And that guy had lured women into positions to believe that they were going to be models for the covers of these magazines. And he would tie them up uh, and then tell them he's going to kill them and then take pictures of their terror. And so Raider, as a 14-year-old, saw these images of women utterly powerless, looking terrified, and it imprinted on him. It's what he wanted to duplicate one day. And so that's where the specifics of what he wanted to do came from, was seeing those images and especially seeing the women bound because he associated bondage with pleasure. Now, I've always said empathy. Empathy is the biggest drug in the world. Do you think it's needing extreme empathy type of personality? I think there's no empathy. There's none. You know, it's like when you have issues, right? Let's say you're a hollow person inside. You're looking for that attention. You're looking for this. You're looking for that. I'm just trying to say, hey, that that had to be set up somewhere. Would you not think? It's like when you have your own issues. I would think that has been, it came from somewhere, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, and I'm just wondering if we, I'm just saying, I'm just wondering, you know, in these situations, I would think something like that, that creates a sensitivity like that and whoever, whatever your makeup is, that has to come from somewhere. Do you think we are doing enough, we're digging deep enough research in these situations to really understand what we need to understand? Can we understand more from your point of view? Well, it sense. sounds like you have a theoretical position that uh, you're hoping this will somehow fit, and I don't take the same position. So no matter what I might say about what I think I understand, if it doesn't fit your your theoretical position, you might say, no, you don't really know. I like digging and trying to find a rationale or, or answer for things. Oh, I, I mean, I think the rationale people. has a lot to do with their psychological development, what they're exposed to. Uh, the, and he had a very strong fantasy life. And as you're coming into puberty, especially as a young male, you're developing sexual desires and they are going to wrap around those things, those images that appeal to you and give you a thrill. Now you have a brain mechanism, a neurotransmitter called dopamine that rewards rewards you. So you want that over and over again. That's part of addiction and it becomes an addiction cycle. And I don't think it needs to be a larger context even mm -hmm. really than that to, to at least explain how did Dennis Rader, one of the serial killers I've studied, how did he become a serial killer? I don't think it's, it's really larger than that. I don't think it it's about his parents necessarily. I uh, I think it had a lot to do with uh, how much time he spent alone as a boy, how much time he spent in his fantasy life, the mm -hmm. fact that his fantasy life was much more engaging than real life for him. And even after he got married and had kids, he still preferred the fantasy life. And so he made the fantasy life his real life. And that's not really a multiple personality. That is simply having uh, different compartments in our life frames and the one that you enjoy the most is the one you're going to try to spend the most time in if you can. I'll dig deep on something. I'll dig deep one more time on something you just said that was interesting. It's like when he started doing this, you know, and liked it, right? 
you know, hereditary. Like if you trigger something, you trigger a cancer or you trigger something you're vulnerable to. You think it was, you think he could, once he started experiencing these things, it just triggered something that was bigger than him. Could that be a possibility? Triggered what? If you want to prevent cancer, right? You try to eat the right things. You try to, you know, eat the foods that can prevent cancer, but you Obviously, you can't cure cancer, right? And a lot of the times, if people are acceptable to certain things in their life and they trigger that, right, and it and it takes off and they, they get something, a sickness or whatever it is, there's no turning back from that. I have no idea. I'm just wondering if it's based on how you said that. I'm just wondering if it's like a trigger because once he initiated that, he felt that. Well, I think, blew, I think a lot up. of these, I think a lot of these offenders start by living in their fantasy life, at least the sexually compelled ones, males. Uh, they start by living in, the, in a fantasy life that feels very rich and exciting to them. Then then they have an opportunity to act in a way that um, duplicates that experience. And then if they do act out, well, they've crossed a line, but sometimes they find it's not what the fantasy was. So they that's as far as they go. They cross a the line, they go back, they don't want it, they don't want to really do this. But those cross the line and find, wow, this is as, as exciting as I thought or more so. First of all, there's a brain mechanism that kicks in. Um, the dopamine feeds the reward center of the brain and makes them want more of this. Uh, so they, they'll they go for it and, and then they'll repeat it. It really depends on what their experience is when they do cross the line as to whether they can get back or not. And Rader actually talks about um, it, it was almost like when he began to kill, it was like pushing himself away from shore, thinking he could always get back. But mm -hmm. then one day he looked and there wasn't any more shore. What is your, like when you go in the room with these people, I mean, what do you feel like? What's going through your head? Well, you don't get to be in a room with them. You talk with them through whatever mechanism the prison has for doing that, but you're not right you don't, there. You don't get... No. You, no, you, they keep you separate. You don't get like okay. a across the table type of thing. Not across the table. It's maximum security. You are in a booth. They're in a booth. In These this... are considered very dangerous individuals. So the only way you would get in a room with them is if you were there with their attorney because gotcha. their attorney would be with them. And then there's a reason why the attorney wants you to go in with them. That would be in the same room with them. That's not my experience. Um, yeah, what is your drive? What do you, what's going through your head? What do you, I don't you solve know? my own mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> I use, I use my mysteries to uh, fuel my passion for writing and researching. So you kind of parlay the information to, you know, a narrative. Yeah, exactly. Is this just a passion, something you really, really enjoy to see how? I enjoy it. I've been doing it for over 25 time. years. So obviously, I enjoy it. And uh, I hope to be doing it for a few more years as well. And I'm also now using it as a basis for a fiction series about a forensic psychologist who has a PI team. So that's fun for me. Is there a goal behind the narrative for you? Well, the goal, um, like each book is its own thing. The one I did with Dennis Rader was to be able to teach criminal justice and forensic psychology about how he, 
a person who seemed ordinary, an all-American boy, without any of the expected factors in his background, could still become a serial killer. So I think I contribute to our literature that way. Also taught law enforcement some things about stereotypes because mm-hmm. they totally missed getting him based on the idea that a Boy Scout volunteer couldn't possibly be a serial killer. So, yes, they can. You, when you say <laughs> stereotypes, what do you mean? What, what well, like is a, your... What I just said, like the stereotype of the serial killer is not a person who's in the community, who has a family, who's active in his church, who has a, a regular job. That the stereotype is this loner, lives with his mother, you know, does a few menial pieces of work here and there, and has abuse in his background, head injuries. These are all the, the kinds of things that are formulas that we have gotten used to, largely thanks to studies from the FBI, which were incomplete and unrepresentative. Um, so we've gotten used to that. And I thought Raider was a very good example of um, an outlier to these studies to show not so fast. Mm-hmm. You, you think you have it figured out? This this guy shows you not. No, you don't. And mm-hmm. uh, we have to keep open to anomalies to these formulas. So I thought that book contributed that. But I've done another one with an accomplice to a serial killer, which isn't out yet, but looking at it from the point of view of a person who got leveraged when he was an adolescent into killing people um, by an older adult. So what was that like? And what were the mechanics of that? And that has led to a book on uh, looking more deeply into the dynamics of these these team killers and what happens to accomplices. Well, when you say accomplices, I think about family. Have you ever seen where families knew this was going on and, and, and didn't do anything about it. What have you seen some experiences about that? Anything about family members, the effect of the effect it has on family mem- members? That's horrifying for the family members. For the most part, the killers are very good at keeping their secrets mm-hmm. and uh, the family members are completely taken by surprise. They begin to realize they've been living with this highly deceptive person um, you know, often the family members are, are active in the community. Now they're, you know, embarrassed and shamed. They, mm-hmm. Many of their connections are going to be gone. They, often um, people vilify them and say, you had to have known, you had to have known, you must have enabled this or you might have caused this. So a lot of ignorant people attack the family members because they're certain they saw the signs and they could have done something to stop it. But mm-hmm. that's just not true. And that, and of the, all the family members of, of the offenders that I've spoken to were blindsided just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Have you recognized anything in law enforcement that you think they could improve on? I know you just spoke about the stereotype thing. Is there a process you think you could help them improve or they need to improve on? Is that well, I think, moving I think forward? Expect, yeah, I think their expectations is the first thing that that can mislead them and make them overlook things because they're expecting a certain thing. Like it used to be there was a, there was a case in Louisiana where um, a black man was going into a white neighborhood and murdering women. And th- the um, law enforcement thought a serial killer had to be white. So they ignored the reports from witnesses that that a black man had done this Mm -hmm. and then fed all this information to the FBI profilers without the most important piece of information because their assumption was, well, it can't be that guy because serial killers are only white. 
Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that was very misleading. And um, the guy continued to kill because law enforcement had made had had bought into this unfounded notion. Mm-hmm. So we have a we have cultural myths about serial killers, and I think. The best thing we can do, and the FBI has tried to do this, is break some of those down so that they don't fall into a a certain type of blindness like that Mm -hmm. case. Could you reverse engineer the current process and and maybe look at it of, you know, finding one angle, shooting a wider net and kind of backing into discovery instead of trying to. If we didn't have if we didn't have so much media Mm -hmm. that buys into the uh, formulas. So unfortunately, that is pervasive in our society, Mm -hmm. Uh, like criminal minds and CSI and some of the things that oversimplify these concepts. We have so much of that out there to fight against that it's difficult. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's certainly law enforcement training you can do, but funding is tight. And sometimes they just don't want to listen to anyone that they consider to be an outsider. So mm-hmm. if I'm not myself law enforcement, they don't think I have anything to tell them. Because, you know, based on what I'm hearing from you is they, they're assuming all these attributes or whatever you want to call them, they're assuming these things and it's almost like cutting their nose off to spite their face. They're li- it's almost like limiting themselves to some they extent. They do limit, but on the other hand, I have to give them some credit too because certainly they've, they're the ones who've arrested these people based on good investigative skills. I mean, the book that we were going to talk about, How to Catch Killer, um, is, is about forensic innovation that came out of serial killer cases, about forensic investigation that was well done and persistent and shows us a good model for how it's done. Mistakes that killers have made that got them caught uh, is, is another part of this book. But the investigation and the innovation parts are about law enforcement, not just doing the right thing, but doing a lot of create creative things in response to these cases. So I'm not going to put them all in one basket at all. But I do know that if they buy into some of the myths and formulas, they are uh, limiting themselves in a way that could allow somebody to slip through cracks. And, you know, the, the majority of killers are not serial killers. That's that's a rare type. That's, mm-hmm. We see that in the media, and it almost feels like they're everywhere, but they're not. Most of the things that they're doing are situational homicides, um, drug deals, and, and domestic battering, and things like that, bar fights. That's mostly what they're trained to do, and they do that well. Serial murder cases are harder to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the mistake made with Raider was uh, there was a woman missing and the cops were out looking and he had just come from a, a Boy Scout overnight that because that was his cover story. And so he used the uniform to basically deflect suspicion from him. So that officer did not search him or his car. And that was what he was supposed to do. So no matter what the person looks like, you do your job. Mm-hmm. Don't assume because he's a Boy Scout volunteer, he can't possibly be the person you're looking for because he can and she can too, by the way, because there's a lot of myths about females. So the problem is to try to break through the simplistic thinking that's 
pervasive in our culture. I mean, you you have but to listen to some of the web sleuths uh, on some of these cases to hear all the oversimplifications and assumptions that get made and the bad logic that's used. And it's just, it's out there. It's hard to train that out of people because it, when you use logic and good or bad, it feels good. You mm. feel like you've made your case and good enough, but it's not good enough. People's lives are at stake, and it really requires to careful thinking, not quick assumptions and the need to have answers right now. And you know that that's really been a problem, I think, with a lot of the social media stuff. Oh, that's that's somewhat unconscious bias, right? They have unconscious, well, unconscious bias. Yeah. Is, yeah, it's cultural, culturally based for the most part. Yeah, and walking through this book, How to Catch a Serial Killer, you just touched on a little bit of it. Walk us through this a little bit. A little bit more of what we haven't talked about. Well, it, it kind of started with, uh, with actually, frankly, an editor asked me to write about, he thought, a dozen cases, but I came up with 80 cases that we could use, and we narrowed it back down to 30. But in of the 30, I had already looked at a, a number of factors that were involved in uh, the capture of serial, uh, certainly notorious serial killers. So I categorized it into, I think, five factors, uh, forensic innovation, so things that new, new things that were made for, for capturing a killer, and then investigation, which was probably the highest percentage of was just really good, dogged investigation. And then the mistakes and miscalculations by the offenders themselves, like driving, or driving your car with a corpse in it and, and you run a stop sign. That's pretty stupid, right? Mm -hmm. And then witnesses who saw something and turned a person in. So we have a lot of that. And then uh, here and there, you'll have a serial killer uh, turning themselves in. So mm -hmm. I have a section on that as well. What gets a serial killer to turn themselves in? Depends on the case. But in one case, the guy really was full of remorse and he thought he couldn't stop. So he he turned himself in. Um, he, he brought evidence with him to do that. But that's pretty rare. It, uh, one of the cases I have was an accomplice who killed the serial killer who got him involved and then and then turned himself in called I just killed this guy and then told them where all the bodies were Charles Cullen was a healthcare serial killer who was suspected in uh, mismanaging I saw that movie yeah, well, he's he suspected in mismanaging medications, and while he was in court, he just blurted out, you know, that he killed all these people. No one would have necessarily known about all of that, but he turned himself in. Ed Kemper is another one. He was uh, he, the co-ed killer. He had um, picked up hitchhikers in Santa Cruz, California in the early 1970s, murdered them, dismembered them and then killed his mother and her best friend and went on the run. And then I think just realized he didn't have any resources. So he called up the cops who he was friends with and uh, turned himself in. When you talk about a Coleman, he was, that Coleman guy was from West Orange. That's right. Cullen. Or is it, what is yeah. it called? Yeah. What's his last name? Cullen? Cullen. His name is Charles Cullen. Charles Cullen. Um, yeah. Charles Cullen was near where I lived. He was from West Orange, near North Caldwell. Right. Um, Mountainside, knew Mountainside Hospital very well in Montclair. What was his desire? What was he getting out of doing what he did? And he also lived in my town for a while. Oh, really? He was in a, a number of the healthcare facilities right here 
where I live. Um, his desire was empowerment because when you looked at the timeline of the people he killed, uh, each of them was during a time in his life when he felt helpless, depressed, suicidal. Um, he would kill someone, I think, to feel better. Interesting. Well, that's, you know, that kind of goes back to the extreme of needing something, right? The people who are hollow, they feel like they need something, they need attention. Um, and obviously, it's a very, 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 very extreme situation. What is yeah. there any other odd scenarios that you've run into through your studies? Like, just, just to kind of threw you off, you're like, now this is different. Well, I, I have several in the book. Uh, one is a female. Uh, in Italy, who uh, believed in palm readers and psychics and whatnot. And uh, she was told that all of her children would die before her. A palm reader told her this. And uh, she turns out, you know, after she had all these kids, a number of them did die. And then her oldest son was going to go off to wars during Mussolini's time, and he was going to go off and join the army. And she was so worried about him that she thought, well, she could save him, make sure he didn't get killed by killing someone else. And so she brought over a friend um, on false pretenses, drugged her, murdered her, dismembered her, cooked her, uh, defleshed her, cooked her blood into flour, made dried flour out of it, made tea cakes out of it, and then sent the tea cakes to her son to eat so that he would get that supernatural, you know, protection from it. And then when it seemed to work, she killed two more women just to make sure. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really unusual motivation. Yeah. Very unusual. I always think about in this day and time, when you hear about the shootings and all this nonsense that's going on in the world, you know, it's like people, people forget about the value of life. Right. And obviously the serial killers, are not giving life any value, would you? So I don't think they forget the value. I think they understand the value very well because they want the fame and they want to make a big impact in some way. Like we just had two mass murders in California, the shootings. They want to punish people and make a big splash in some way. So they understand Mm -hmm. shooting and killing people is a lot more dramatic than burning a building. So mm-hmm. I think they understand the value of human life very well. They just don't treasure it. When you talk about mass murders, which is a bit different than serial killers, often they're at the end of their rope. They're angry. They feel entitled. They can't get the resources they need. They want to punish someone. They want to make a statement. They want to be famous. Whatever it is that's motivating them, um, they often they're suicidal. Um, mm-hmm. Not you know, One was, the other in California there, there was arrested, but often... They just have nothing left and they want to make a big statement somehow. Some of them want to be the world's worst mass murderer. So they attempt to beat other people's records. We have several of those. And what do you have any thoughts on spirituality and how that may be a factor and any any connection there? Or are you just, you just strictly by the book there? about what uh, you see in front of you. That's a huge topic, and you'll have to define what you mean by spirituality. Well, when I say spirituality, like, the, like I don't know, you said the palm reader, right? The concept of someone thinking they be, may be possessed, right? The well, dark we have, side. We have a number of killers who think that. Really? And what, what's your thoughts on that? You know, we talked about the ancestral, and this is just another digging deep for me. Do you think there's something to that? 
I've never seen it actually be true. Gotcha. So, so it's maybe an internal excuse for the actual person. I think so. It seems to be. It's not as if they exhibit supernatural powers because they have a demon in them or anything like that. I mean, Raider tried that at first because his minister didn't just couldn't accept that they had worked together. And so he thought Raider had to be demon possessed. And so Raider went along with that until the minister stopped coming to visit. And then after that, it was he did. It was some other reason. (laughs) Depends on who he's talking to. So. Um, and there's never been anything in the 12 years I've known him that suggests to me he is or ever was demon possessed. Interesting. Do you believe in that stuff? Oh, my beliefs are really not the issue here. So <laughs> I'd rather not. As I said, I don't solve my own mystery and I don't really talk about my beliefs. I like that. Well, we've been on here a while and I think we've, we've had a, a really good conversation and I think people could learn a lot from you and, and what you do. And if anybody out there wants to, you know, find out how to catch a serial killer. It's a very big topic. One of my comedians talks about it in her set on, you know, Mm. so a lot of people resonate to that information, you know, and uh, if they want to find any of your books or any of your writings, where do they need to look? You can find them. I do have a website that's devoted to my novels and that is um, my name.net. So Catherine Ramsland.net, but most of the, my books are on the major real t- retailers, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. And I'm sure these books have done very, very well, right? Yeah. I, I would sure. It's, it's a, a big, it's a, b- a big time for serial killers. That's for sure. It's a very intriguing topic. Well, if you want to know anything about a serial killer or how to catch a serial killer, check out Catherine Ramsland. I think we had a great conversation today and hopefully everybody learned something from this conversation and, uh, Appreciate you coming on the show. And my name is John Edmonds Cosma. I'm the CEO of Bang Productions. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 